Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your guest host, Richard Newell. This episode is the first in our month-long spin-off series called Big Decisions, the Future of U.S. Environmental and Energy Policy. Regular hosts Daniel Ramey and Kristen Hayes are taking a well-earned month off, so we'll broadcast this special series in our same Resources Radio time slot every Tuesday in October, and we'll return to Daniel and Kristen in November. For this Big Decision series, I have the pleasure of sharing guest hosting duties with Sue Tierney, the chair of RFF's board of directors and a leading expert in energy economics, regulation, and policy. Sue and I will have conversations with leading decision makers on both sides of the aisle, top analysts, scholars, and reporters to discuss the big decisions that will likely affect U.S. environmental and energy policy in the years to come. Stay with us. My guest today is Amy Harder, a reporter at Axios who covers energy, the environment, and climate change issues. Amy writes the weekly Harder Line column. Previously, Amy covered similar issues for the Wall Street Journal and the National Journal, and she was the inaugural journalism fellow for the University of Chicago's Energy Policy Institute in 2018. I'm really happy to have Amy on the podcast today. It's the second time she's joined us in this venue, and she's certainly been involved in other RFF events and is a great friend to RFF generally. Amy, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me on. So we want to begin this big decision series by looking specifically at the big federal legislative decisions we're likely to see in the 117th Congress. Uh, in other parts of the series, we'll look more specifically at regulatory decisions. But before we get into all that, let's start with a question about you, Amy. You recently moved to Seattle right around the time we all started quarantine, and you're continuing to report for Axios. How do you think your move from Washington, D.C. to Seattle has affected your approach to reporting on national issues, or may it affect your approach in the future? Yeah, certainly. I think it it will more in the future. I think the, the timing of my move, which was made, the decision to move was made before the pandemic. Uh, I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest, uh, so that was part of the reason. Um, but the other reason was I really want to do more coverage of how federal policy on energy and climate change affects you know, real people and real companies out in the world. Hmm. So, you know, that plan has been put on pause somewhat with the pandemic sort of keeping us all at home more than we would have been otherwise. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it's it's something that I would like to do more of considering I spent 12 years in D.C. and I really know Congress and the lawmakers there. And of course, I'll definitely continue covering that, but I want to supplement it with you know, talking to companies. For example, there's a big trucking company based in Bellevue, Washington, not far from me, and there's a huge push to electrify big trucks. And so that's the type of thing that I would like to do, you know, in the coming years. Um, But recently Axios hosted an event where without my involvement at all, we happened to book Governor Inslee of Washington and Amazon's top uh, sustainability official. So they're both Washington-based people. And I I saw that as sort of a a confirmation that the debate on climate change is going so much broader than just Washington, D.C. Now, you can't ever have this debate without the federal government, but the debate is getting broader and there's getting more players in. and, and, And that's what I hope to do in the coming months and years. Yeah, it's really interesting with with uh, so much activity at the state level, particularly I would say uh, you know on the West Coast, and also the 
the important role of uh, the technology sector um, in, in driving change in the energy system. Uh, we look forward to hearing, uh, hearing your reporting on, on those issues. Now let's, let's take a look at different potential outcomes regarding which party controls the White House and the Senate for the next few years and the big environmental and energy policy decisions that lawmakers will confront. Uh, let me start by mentioning some of the most recent forecasts from Nate Silver's 538.com, and then we'll look at three different scenarios for control at the federal level. Uh, I'm personally drawn to the 538 source because it looks not only at polling numbers, but also combines that information with data on fundamentals like economic data, demographic data, the design of the Electoral College, and likely voter turnout. So right now, 538 forecasts suggest that the most likely electoral outcome is where Democrats get control of both the White House and the Senate, uh, in addition to maintaining control of the House of Representatives. Um, 538's recent modeling has been saying that there's about a 77 or 78% chance of former Vice President Biden winning the presidency and about a 61 or 62% chance of Democrats uh, winning control of the Senate. Reality uh, could, of course, turn out really differently from that forecast, of course, but let's first discuss the implications of that scenario. So, Amy, given where we are with the coronavirus, uh, national reckoning on race relations, and so much else on the list for the first 100 days of a Biden administration, what do you think will be prioritized in energy and environmental policy? If there's also democratic control of the Senate and House, which of these will become priorities for translating into legislative action? Well, if you had asked that question to me, you know, six or seven months ago, I think I would have been a lot more uh, confident that climate change would be clearly a top issue uh, for a democratic sweep uh, after these elections, if that's indeed what occurs. I think over the last six months, of course, we've seen the pandemic overwhelm the entire world. And in addition to that, of course, the systemic racism that is really coming to the forefront. And so I think it's a little bit uh, has inevitably dropped a little bit in the congressional priority. Um, but that being said, over the last 10 years, there's really been a, a much greater awareness of this issue around the country and with the public. And so I think even though there's these other really pressing issues, I do still think Democrats in Congress and a potential President Biden would find ways to weave in and integrate a, a discussion about climate change and environmental justice with anything that they do on on these other issues. Now, congressional priority is a really important issue. I think uh, some people may remember the early days of the Obama administration. You know, Obama campaigned a lot on climate change, but he also campaigned a lot on health care reform. And of course, he pursued health care reform before climate policy, and he got the health care bill through in a very acrimonious uh, way. Um, and he just couldn't get it over the finish line when it came to climate policy. And so, you know, there is something to be said that if you're second, uh, you may not have enough political capital left. And I do still think that there's the possibility of that uh, happening, even though Senate Democrats and House Democrats and Biden have all said they really prioritize climate change. When the rubber hits the road, I think there'll be these other ideas and, and, and topics that really take precedence. So I think, I think it's an open question, more so than it was, you know, seven or eight months ago. So, so are, are you saying that if there's substantial legislative action around energy and climate, it might be part of a package that's focused on other priority issues like COVID response? 
Yes, exactly. I think in the debate of energy and climate change, uh, we, we've tended to be a little bit too binary. It's either, you know, a cap and trade policy or the Green New Deal or a carbon tax or it's nothing. And I, I don't think a carbon tax or cap and trade is likely anytime soon. And, and we can talk about that later. But I still think there's ways to do climate policy in a bigger way than certainly what's happened over the last four years. And, you know, the Columbia University's um, think tank on energy recently released a big report on energy innovation and how the federal government can step up its efforts in that regard. And there's a lot of, you know, climate activists who sort of turn their nose up at just energy R&D. But nonetheless, it could make a substantial difference. And so I think you'll see that type of thing in any sort of COVID economic response. Of course, we saw that also, again, going back in time because history repeats itself or at least rhymes with itself. Uh, we saw that after the 2008 economic crash, that's what Obama did. But the problem that happened there is he put a huge down payment on clean energy, but he didn't follow it up with a market response. And most experts say that there needs to be some sort of market signal. And so far, I still do not see the political support for a market-based climate policy, even less so now with the entire world in a recession. Yeah, really interesting. Um, so one other quite conceivable situation in 2021 is a split outcome where Biden is in the White House and Republicans continue to control the Senate, uh, perhaps with a slimmer majority. Uh, when an outcome ends up being so close like that, some might expect a complete logjam. Uh, at the same time, we've seen in some cases both parties coming together to support legislation. Uh, an obvious recent example is the Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, Amy, I thought you made a particularly interesting point on Axios about why legislation like that can make progress while other energy and climate legislation often stalls. Um, can you explain why that happens and what the implications might be for a split outcome like this? Certainly, yeah. So climate change as a concrete issue has become so polarized over the last decade that policies that are really intricately tied with climate change often run into political headwinds so much more than, you know, tangential issues like uh, conservation and public lands, which is what was at the heart of the Great Outdoors Act. And so you still see Congress coming together to do big things in that respect. Uh, I, I would make two other points on this. Uh, with two other examples. One, going back to 2015, which is five years, but still in this modern day era of constant gridlock, uh, Congress came together to uh, do what I call a grand bargain of pairing a policy that lifted the 40-year-old ban on oil exports with extending incentives, tax incentives for wind and solar power. And that really, experts say, made a big difference uh, to climate change and clean energy because it provided an extra boost to wind and solar. But it also really satisfied the oil industry um, in a way that didn't really uh, make a, a huge difference in terms of production, although having that additional market certainly is, is, a, is a plus for more drilling. But that was an instance where both sides got something they wanted and they didn't conflict with the other one. If there is any sort of climate policy done in Washington, it needs to be done that way. Uh, and I think 
uh, you need to you need to compromise in Washington. I think that's still something uh, that is sort of a political dirty word, compromise, middle ground. But I think when when the rubber is hitting the road and you're in the hallways of Congress, ultimately that's what occurs. Now looking forward, one area that I could see potential bipartisan compromise under either another President Trump or a President Biden would be agreement on HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons and refrigerants, um, which are um, potent greenhouse gases that are contained in appliances like HVACs and things like that. Uh, I could see a, a position on that where the Senate and House pass a bill supporting policies um, to encourage this transition to these cleaner types of refrigerants. And then there's actually a global treaty that's uh, parallel to the Paris Climate Agreement, but it's a separate one, the Montreal Protocol. An amendment to that policy, I could actually see a Senate uh, supporting that under either president. And so even though that is about climate change, the industry that is affected by it is completely in support of it. And so that's another really important uh, component to this. Although you can love or hate industry, at the end of the day, they're key players. And so I would list, I would list those three areas, the HFCs and the oil exports and tax incentives, and then the Great Outdoors Act, as ways climate and energy policy can move forward, even if it isn't the big sweeping policies that we think of. And just really quickly, you know, right now there's a pending bill that Senator Murkowski and others have pushed on the, on energy innovation. Uh, again, that's it's a smaller ball policies that won't satisfy the loudest climate activists. But I still think that could have potential, maybe not this year with everybody so politically focused on the election, but perhaps next year. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, American Energy Innovation Act. Uh, I was, I was going to ask you about that. And you know, we've been um, been doing a series of events and are, are doing some deep analysis of the the impacts of support for different advanced energy technologies uh, that are included in that act, like advanced nuclear, advanced geothermal, grid scale storage, carbon capture and storage, direct air capture. So, um, you know, that does that that particular act does seem to have some uh, bipartisan momentum. Um, so, Amy, there's of course a, a third scenario to consider, which is the status quo. Um, where President Trump secures a second term, uh, Republicans continue to hold a Senate majority, and Democrats keep the House. So in that case, a number of particularly interesting changes could take place in committee leadership on the Republican side. Uh, for example, let's take the chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee in the Senate. Uh, Senator Murkowski will step down, and Senator Barrasso is next in line to take the helm. Uh, in doing so, Senator Barrasso would give up being chair of the Committee on Environment and Public Works. Um, what are the implications of that, Amy, for energy and environmental policy in the 117th Congress? Yeah, I was looking uh, over the the members of these different committees, and you know, it really struck me that you know all the Republicans in line to to be leading these committees or to be, to have senior positions in these committees are really quite conservative, and it, to me, it just reflects the fact that you know, Republicans are often getting more conservative and Democrats in some cases are getting more liberal. And so that to me is not a recipe for bipartisanship because the lawmakers are further apart on most issues. So Senator Barrasso, of course, is is a 
quite conservative Republican. He represents Wyoming, which is the biggest coal producing state in the country. And so he'll be very uh, defensive of that energy resource. You know, of course, he has supported carbon capture technologies, uh, which uh, in theory enables us to capture CO2 emissions from coal plants and other emitting facilities. It could also, therefore, in theory, continue the existence of coal as an electricity source, which is why Senator Brasso uh, is supporting it. But Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a a Democrat from Rhode Island and a climate hawk, uh, he also supports it uh, because we're so dependent upon oil, natural gas, and coal that many experts say that we'll need some sort of carbon capture technology. And so, you know, I could see areas of bipartisan support in that respect. Senator Barrasso also, um, as chairman of the Environment Committee, he recently came out in support of a deal on the HFC refrigerant policy I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. And so, you know, he, he had some concerns about earlier measures that potentially gave states the ability to go even more aggressive than the federal government. So again, that reflects his conservative um, positions on, you know, not allowing states to have even bigger climate policies. So yeah, any any other noteworthy changes in committee leadership, uh, either in the House or the Senate um, that you see potentially affecting energy and environmental legislation in this again in this scenario with uh, continued uh, control of Republicans uh, in the Senate and Democrats in the House? Yeah, well, on on this Senate EPW committee, uh, Shelley Moore Capito is next in line to be uh, potentially the chair of that committee. Now, it depends on her other committee assignments and, and how that shuffles down. But I think she's, you know, she hails from another big coal producing state, West Virginia. And again, I think even though coal as a resource has has significantly dropped off over the last 10 years, you still see a lot of really potent political support for it. Uh, and so that's what I would anticipate she to defend in the in the Environment Committee. In the House, I think, you know, you'll continue to see more of the same uh, types of policies. I think you have, you know, Speaker Pelosi, although she generally supports the idea of the Green New Deal, she hasn't actually endorsed it. And so I'll anticipate continuing to see the, the House, if it's controlled by Democrats, trying to give good rhetoric to big climate policy, but actually trying to pursue smaller ball issues at the same time. Interesting. Another big issue at the moment is the implication of Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court and the implications for action on climate change with a more conservative Supreme Court in place. When President Obama couldn't get congressional action on climate and energy, he fell back on regulatory authorities at the executive level. Um, The Supreme Court then put a stay on President Obama's clean power plan before Justice Scalia died on the grounds that it was likely beyond the scope of their authority under the Clean Air Act. Um, The Supreme Court doesn't only opine on cases involving executive action, of course, it also does so for legislative action by Congress. So Amy, do you see any provisions of existing energy and environmental law that could be called into question uh, by a more conservative Supreme Court? Well, certainly, I think um, one big target uh, by conservatives was is has always been and continues to be and will be the 2007 mass versus EPA 
decision by the high court, which basically gave the federal government the ability and the right to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, which is a very significant law that even, you know, some conservatives have defended since then. And so I think Barrett's uh, track record on environmental issues has not been as developed as perhaps other topics. Um, but I do see that one as potentially being a target. But I think there's a lot of other issues that are uh, a higher priority for um, conservatives and, and in terms of defending in Democrats, such as uh, abortion and other topics like that. Uh, I think generally speaking, the, the continued tilt to the right by the high court, uh, one big uh, concern I would have if I were a Democrat or environmental leader is that the, the, there would be three remaining liberal justices and you need four to agree to take up a case. And so there, there could be a lot of cases uh, that are filed by environmental groups that might not even see the light of day at the mm. high court if, uh, if Trump succeeds in confirming a conservative justice. So I think apart from the specific details of his nominee, I think there's some bigger issues that are at hand. Yeah, that's an interesting point that uh, you don't hear hear mentioned a lot. Um, so, Amy, what's one not so well known race, uh, either at the federal level or the state level, that you're watching closely? Um, you know, a race that tells us something about where the country might be heading on energy and environmental issues. I've always found um, the the state of Colorado to be really fascinating, given it's it's a purple state politically. Uh, it's, it has corners of conservatism, but corners of liberalism, and uh, also has a huge oil and gas uh, production. So um, the Senate race there, uh, which is relatively lower profile um, compared to obviously the, the presidential election, the incumbent um, Senator Cory Gardner, Republican, vying against uh, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Uh, I find that race interesting because it's a moderate Democrat, Hickenlooper, who actually has supported the oil and gas industry in Colorado, but has also pursued aggressive climate policies there as well. You know, you've seen some environmental groups, such as the League of Conservation Voters, actually coming out to support Hickenlooper, uh, even though they're probably not thrilled with his position on oil and gas. Um, and so that type of race, I think, is interesting um, to see where the center of gravity is in a state like Colorado. Yeah, really, really good example of a, of a, of a state that has, um, you know, wide range of viewpoints on uh, energy and environmental issues. Um, so, Amy, uh, you know, final question, uh, we call this our, our top of the stack question. Um, what have you read, watched, or heard recently related to energy, the environment, climate, or perhaps the democratic process that you think is really interesting or th that you'd recommend to our listeners? Yeah, definitely. Well, I uh, recently received uh, Daniel Jurgen, who's a, I think he was recently on your program as well. Um, and he has a new book out that I've started reading that, of course, he's such a um, well-respected expert on this front. And it's been fascinating to me to see his evolution as an energy historian to embrace the discussion of climate change more. I remember once uh, about a year after, or a little bit less than a year after I joined Axios, I was chatting with with Dan, and he said to me, he's like, he's like, geez, you're covering climate change a lot more. And I found that, you know, an interesting reflection of where the debate was. And the, the debate has shifted to climate change, as well as energy so much more over the last several years. And so um, I, I'm looking forward to finishing that book. Um, and I also 
uh, recently read, um, given I just moved to to the moved back to the Pacific Northwest. I recently read the. Uh, it's not a new book, but it's called The Golden Spruce. It's a it's a book about this this timber uh, logger guy who turned to become an environmentalist and cut down this beautiful tree and and it, and it really to me uh, helped me appreciate forests more and I love to go running in forests and and I haven't really covered that side of the environmental space as much and so it really helped uh, give me a sense of appreciation um, for trees and for forests which you know just to bring a full circle I mean forests are becoming a top topic again in the climate change space as a source of offsets as corporations and uh, corporations have aggressive climate policies and Republicans in in Congress are trying to to support some sort of climate policy they talk about trees a lot so so those are so some two examples that I would recommend yeah, interesting. Well, you know, uh, top of my stack is is also Dan Jurgen's book, uh, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. And uh, as you mentioned, I'll be uh, interviewing uh, Dan Jurgen. And uh, when this podcast airs, you'll be able to also view that uh, online at rff.org. Um, well, Amy uh, Harder, reporter at Axios, thanks so much for joining us this week. You've given us a lot of food for thought. And let's see what happens in the coming months. Sounds great. Thank you again. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental energy and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.